Thank you, Sally. And uh, stay there, friends, in Luke chapter 10, as we um, follow Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, which is the road to the cross, and hear from him about life as his disciples and the values of his kingdom. We started this uh, last week, and my encouragement to you in this season of January, this month, uh, that hopefully you've got some downtime, hopefully you've got some uh, extra space and uh, some time to enjoy uh, the sunshine and to um, be getting good habits formed, ready for 2021 to roll out in all its fullness. And one of the ways that I've encouraged you to do that is to be reading a Christian book over January. The one that I've uh, picked up is Taking God Seriously. And if you read along with me and make it to the 28th of January, I'll buy you an ice cream. Uh, In the preface, can I just say the book's worth buying just for the preface. Uh, This is what Jim Packer writes about this book. He says, my prayer is that God may use this material to ground thoughtful Christians more fully and clear-headedly in their faith, to stir them out of the sluggishness into which theological and spiritual undernourishment has brought so many of us, and to help us all to take to heart the marching orders given us by our Lord and his apostles, who charge us first to be and then to make disciples everywhere, starting from where we are. This is the Christian's serious business. May God make us serious in attending to it. Uh, That is uh, uh, apt, I think, as we get to Luke chapter 10, which is all about the proclamation of Jesus' kingdom and taking up Jesus' marching orders to take the gospel to the nations. I said last week that discipleship to the Lord Jesus, being one of his followers and uh, following him down the dusty road of the cross, is uh, a serious business. It's not a hobby. It's not entertainment. It's not the coriander on your curry. It's not your Coddy's ice magic on your ice cream. Uh, This is serious business. This is life and death. And we get that in the urgency and in the cost uh, of of Jesus' mission in Luke chapter 10. Uh, If we wanted to picture what the church is like in terms of a boat, the church is not a sailboat uh, where you and your mate are just enjoying the harbour on a Sunday and the church is not a cruise ship for you and your family to have a holiday and some entertainment. The church is a rescue boat with a clear mission to bring people to Jesus and to be uh, a reflection of his grace, his mercy and his love in the world. And Luke chapter 10 reminds us of that urgency and reminds us of that grace Uh, as we begin a new year, this is a great reminder for us about what Jesus' mission is all about. Making disciples of all nations. That's the call that he's laid on our lives and the mission that he's given us as a church. In Matthew 28, as he returns to, to the Father, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of every nation baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. 
Uh, It's a huge mission that Jesus sends us out on and that global mission that we're a part of is foreshadowed and begun here in uh, Luke chapter 10. At the end of chapter 9, when we talked about the coriander and the coddy's ice magic, we're talking about the half-hearted and distracted disciples who said, I would like to follow Jesus, but there's all these other things I need to attend to first. I'd like to follow Jesus, but can I just attend to some of these other responsibilities in life? And Jesus said that following him, first and foremost is the primary call on each of our lives. And at the start of chapter 10, what we have in, in place of those half-hearted and distracted disciples are those who are all in, that Jesus is going to send out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to every town and place where he was about to go. Uh, Jesus takes 72 of them and sends them out two by two. It's widely recognised that the 72 are a a reflection of the 72 nations that are listed in the book of Genesis. Uh, That here in this this picture of gospel proclamation uh, is that it needs to go to all the world. The good news of the kingdom needs to go to every nation because Jesus is the saviour of the world. Not just of some people in one place at one time, the only saviour the world will know, the only king over all the nations, is the Lord Jesus himself. And so proclaiming his kingdom to every nation under heaven is the job that he gives his disciples. And then, I don't know how you feel when you hear that as a, a kind of mission for Christians to be involved in. When Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, that there's urgency in that message, that there's cost in that mission. I hope it feels a bit too big. I hope it feels somewhat overwhelming, somewhat beyond our reach, rather than making you feel confident and competent in your own strategies and skills. Yeah, we can do that. We can, uh, we can see that done, no worries. Uh, maybe it just makes you feel weary and burdened and burnt out. That's too hard. I've tried to share the gospel and just get knocked back. I feel more like the guy in chapter 9 who had just other things to do. Maybe it paralyzes you and you you, you feel like, how do I get on board with that? I just feel so fearful and anxious about it. What I'm thankful for is that Jesus tells us in the cause of global mission what the first step is to be, which is a recognition that this is his ministry and his mission And so the first thing he says, as you go, the harvest is plentiful. There's plenty of mission to be done in all the world. There are very few workers. And instead of being confident in ourselves or burnt out by setbacks or paralysed by fear, Jesus says, because there's so much to do, because there's there's so few people to do it, therefore, Ask the Lord of the harvest. 
He is the one who brings people to himself. Jesus later on says that, the, um, that no one becomes a Christian except by the, the Father revealing uh, himself to them. It is God's work to bring people to himself and that we get to be co-workers in. And so the first step, the first thing that Jesus calls us to before we do anything is dependent prayer, which isn't inactivity, which isn't the thing that you do when you can't think of anything else to do, and it isn't the thing that, that you do when you've tried everything else. It's the first thing that you do in recognition that this is God's work, that this is a spiritual battle, that we need supernatural help of God turning hearts and minds back to himself. And so pray, therefore, that God would send out more workers into his harvest field. If the mission is urgent and the task is so big, pray. Pray. Pray for opportunities. Pray for welcoming homes. Pray for welcoming hearts. Pray for the people all around you. Pray for more workers for the harvest field. For more workers for the harvest field who will do the, the work of proclaiming Christ as a vocation, as a full-time gig. But pray for workers for the harvest who are just like you and me, who are each and every day seeking to speak of Jesus and bring our own lives under his loving rule and care and share something of his love with those around us. There's 182,000 people in the inner west. Many, many, many of them don't know Jesus. Therefore, Pray that we would be a lifeboat on a rescue mission, praying earnestly and consistently and dependently for God to raise up more workers for the harvest, to provide us with more opportunities, and he would do the work of bringing people to love Jesus and to trust him for salvation. As Jesus sends them out, he says, Go. Uh, you are going like lambs among wolves, which doesn't sound pretty, does it? It sounds like there's going to be opposition. There's going to be um, uh, people who don't want to hear what you have to say. And he says, don't take a purse or a bag or sandals. There's, you, you, it's too urgent. It's too important. Just get moving. And when you enter a house, first say peace to this house, and if someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Uh, this is the message of the gospel that Jesus is sending his disciples out with. It's the message of peace. And it's not a message of peace just between people, of like, uh, we're here to, to promote peace between you and me. In the context of Luke's gospel, the peace is equivalent to salvation. Peace is the peace that comes about through the forgiveness of sins. It's peace with God. Peace on earth we celebrated at Christmas through the Saviour King who brings the forgiveness that we so desperately need. That is the peace that is to be proclaimed household to household. 
And what the disciples aren't responsible for is the response of that household. That's God's work. They're responsible to proclaim the peace of the gospel. And if that's welcomed through God's work in that home, in those hearts, then they're to stay and they're to make disciples. But if as they proclaim that peace, if as they proclaim the kingdom of God has come near, God's king has come into the world, and the household rejects it, well, they are still to proclaim the same message, but then to dust off their feet and keep moving. They're not responsible for the response that people make to the gospel. They're responsible for speaking the gospel. Which is a great encouragement for you and me, right? Again, we'd be paralysed by anxiety. We'd be overwhelmed with the task of global mission if the results rest on our shoulders. That is a burden we cannot bear. But our responsibility is simply to speak the gospel, to share it, to show it, to demonstrate it, to keep pointing people to Jesus and proclaiming the peace that comes from the forgiveness of sins. And God is the one that changes hearts and minds. It's liberating, isn't it? Because it means that we can keep going with prayerful dependence on the Lord of the harvest recognising that he will do the work of bringing people to himself. He will do the work of turning hearts and minds and homes and communities back to himself. Our responsibility, like the first disciples, is to proclaim the gospel. In verses 13 to 15, there's a series of woes recognises that many will reject the gospel that even as we proclaim the kingdom of God and the kingship of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and the peace that passes understanding many will reject it many will despise it and despise us as we go and the woes that Jesus proclaims to the cities that reject him to the people who refuse to bow their knee to him as saviour and king. It's not a a shaking of the fist and a casting of judgement. It is the deep sadness that comes in recognising the consequence for those who do reject the good news of God's kingdom. That this has eternal consequences. That it means that you will not Um, uh, enjoy eternal life with Jesus forever but Jesus says in verse 15 you will go down to Hades to the place of the dead it is life and death the response that people make to the gospel whoever listens to you listens to me Jesus says whoever rejects you rejects me But whoever rejects me, rejects him also who sent me. The 72 return to Jesus in verse 17. They come back with joy. 
which is another great encouragement, isn't it? That the mission works. That there's great joy in seeing lives transformed and people turn to Jesus as they receive the good news of the kingdom and the peace with God that the, that the gospel brings. There's great joy and friendship and partnership in the ministry of the gospel. But these 72 are also rejoicing in the wrong thing. They say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus replies to them, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However... Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. These disciples were rejoicing in the fact that they share in Jesus' authority and his victory over evil, uh, that Jesus has defeated Satan and his cronies, and as we proclaim the gospel, we see the impact of that as people come from death to life. What power, what authority these disciples celebrate. Jesus says, don't rejoice in power don't rejoice in authority but rejoice that your name is written in heaven rejoice and celebrate not so much your achievements and the the impact that you've had for Jesus in his kingdom no rejoice in God and what he has done for you in writing your name in the Lamb's book of life that your name is written in his book is cause for great celebration and rejoicing. And that's where Jesus calls them to focus. Verse 21, Jesus shares in some of that joy. He says, "Um, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, For this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, This is Jesus' response. His response is to rejoice in what God is doing, that God is doing the work, Father, Son, and Spirit, to reveal... to reveal the Father to people's hearts. That's why Jesus came into the world, to make God known. So that when we see Jesus, we see the Father. We know exactly what God is like because in the face of Jesus Christ, we have the exact representation of God. We have the image of God, the ultimate image of God in the face of Jesus. So when you see the Son, you've seen the Father. And he is doing the work of making himself known to people. And it's not the wise and learned. It's not the people who are trusting in their own intellect, who are trusting in their own educational standard, Uh, their capacity or their efforts. To those who back in verse 1 are the prayerfully dependent ones. The little children who humbly receive and depend upon Jesus for what he has done rather than trusting in their own learning, their own wisdom, their own effort. They are the ones that Jesus reveals himself to and brings into his kingdom Not those who think they can stand on their own two feet, but those who on their knees depend upon Jesus and trust in his salvation. 
Well, having talked about the wise and learned, we then get an example of one who is trusting in himself. That's the context for the parable of the Good Samaritan, where we pick it up at verse 25, where we read, On one occasion, an expert in the law, one of the wise and learned ones, stood up. Why? Because he was hungry for Jesus? No, because he wanted to test him. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, as he tends to do, responds to a question with a question. Generally, when Jesus responds to a question with a question, it's because the person's asking the wrong questions. And the reality is, the answer to what must I do to inherit eternal life is nothing. That you can't do what's required to inherit eternal life. You inherit a gift. And that's what eternal life is. Jesus responds to him with this question, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Wow, pretty good answer. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. Simple. All you need to do to inherit eternal life is to love God perfectly with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. You do that and you will live. And hopefully as we hear that, your response is simply to say, I have failed already most spectacularly in doing that. As the teacher of the law hears that response, do this and you will live. Love God perfectly. Love your neighbour as yourself. His response as someone who wants to justify himself, as someone who wants to say, well, how can I reframe my life to make that fit what I have done and who I am he asked the question well who is my neighbour let's just clarify that a little bit to make it more achievable and doable and Jesus as so, he so typically does as the teacher of the law wants to minimise the requirements of the law in order to justify himself before God, in order to, to show why he has reached God's perfect standard, Jesus then flips it all on its head and says it's so much bigger than you could ever imagine. That's what Jesus speaks about as he talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan where the teacher of the law wants to minimise it in order to justify himself. Jesus expands it to show just how far short we all fall of God's perfect standard. And so he tells this parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers, it's a dangerous strip of road. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. 
A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Sounds like a bit of a jerk, but you can understand it, right? Self-preservation, it's a dangerous road. If I go to help, maybe they're still there. Maybe I'll get jumped by these robbers as well and I'll be left half dead and what good is that? But the other thing is that this priest had a job to do. He needed to be ceremonially clean and he couldn't go to a man who was dying and, 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 and touch him and remain ceremonially clean. And so he's trying to protect his religious duty that he has for other people. But passing by on the other side, ignoring the need, ignoring someone in distress, clearly isn't the right response, is it? So too, a Levite, another person uh, with a job to do, came by and saw him and passed by on the other side. Again, some more self-preservation. And at this point, what Jesus here is probably expecting is just an ordinary Israelite who came along, a lay person who shows neighbourly love to this person who's half dead. But instead, Jesus blows it all up and says the, the, the ridiculous thing that a Samaritan, as he travelled, when he saw the man, he took pity on him. Showing compassion to someone he'd never met. He didn't know who wasn't part of his tribe or his family. Someone who was an other and a stranger. And he showed compassion. He went to him. He stooped. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on the wounds to to provide healing. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn to take care of him. There's a picture here that the man uses his donkey that the priests no doubt would have had. The man uses the oil and wine that no doubt the Levite, the servant in the temple, would have had. The same resources that these two other two people had and could have used, this stranger does use to show mercy to a man in need, to stoop, to provide love and grace and care. John Stott once wrote that grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. That's the kind of grace, the love that cares and stoops and rescues that Jesus has shown us, that he's going to Jerusalem to die, to demonstrate most supremely. And here we have a Samaritan man, someone who is socially inferior who is religiously impure, who is ethnically despised, who stoops and cares and loves at great cost. It's an amazing picture of grace and love that this Samaritan shows this stranger. And when Jesus says, to the crowd and particularly this teacher of the law. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? 
the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise to stoop and to show grace and care. Go and do likewise is a great response to those who have experienced the mercy of the Lord Jesus. Those who've already received the peace of the kingdom of God and had their sins forgiven and are seeking to live out the reality of grace, go and do likewise is a great response to care for those around you, to love the stranger, the person next to you, the one that you come across to provide for needs at great cost, at great compassion, not just for those who belong to your tribe or to your family, But the person right in front of you, it's a great challenge for the Christian who's experienced the overwhelming grace of God in Jesus, his stooping and caring and rescuing love. But for someone like this lawyer who wants to justify himself and stand on his own two feet before God, go and do likewise presents an impossible standard and an an improbable task. The reality is that Christians, those who have experienced the mercy of God, ought to be ones on the front line of caring for people in need as a logical outworking of the gospel and as we proclaim the kingdom to every nation under heaven, and those around us. We need to do so with the same kind of stooping, caring, rescuing love that is the grace of God in Jesus. Seeking to meet needs, not just for people that we like or people that we're attracted to or people from our own tribe, but even to the stranger, the person that God places in front of us. But we do not do that as a means to self-justification. Caring for the poor does not give you a place of right standing before God. That only comes by trusting in Jesus and the peace that comes through his death on the cross. As one writer has said, evangelism, speaking about Jesus to the world, is the primary task the church has given Caring for the poor, well, that is a necessary task that the church is given. Even as we speak about Jesus, seeking to stoop and care and rescue with the same kind of love that is gracious and sacrificial and costly, is incredibly important as a response to what Jesus has done for us, not as a means to our own right standing before God. Why don't I pray that we might be people this year who stoop and care and rescue with words about Jesus and with the kind of care that the Good Samaritan showed. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that you graciously include us in your plans and purposes to make disciples of all nations. Help us to joyfully and sacrificially take up Jesus' marching orders to take the gospel to people all around us. And as we do, may we also demonstrate 
the gracious, stooping, caring love of Jesus as we care for those around us and seek to relieve their needs, especially their eternal need of knowing the forgiveness of sins and the peace that passes all understanding. Make us prayerfully dependent in this endeavour, we pray, not trusting in our own strategies or our own effort, not being crushed by the overwhelming nature of the task, but knowing that you are sovereign, that you are gracious, that you are always bringing people to yourself even as we speak of Jesus and show his love. Do this for us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.